Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Christy Hamilton, the head of investments at the $2 billion Children's Health Medical Center of Dallas, Texas. She may be most well-known for her wide following on Twitter, where she writes about institutional allocation under the handle ROI Christie. Our conversation covers Christie's career path, experience on Twitter, and the investment process at Children's Health, covering its mission, strategy, manager selection, opportunities, and risks. 
In our closing questions, you won't want to miss Christy's list of investment pet peeves and life lessons learned. Please enjoy my conversation with Christy Hamilton. Christy, great to see you. Good to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, why don't we start with your background and your path to your seat today? Oh, it's weird. I'm very non-traditional in that regard. So I started off at Fidelity as an options trader of all things. And it's really funny because the thing about doing options with retail clients is that it's your job to basically talk them out of options <laughs> trades and to basically help them build hedging strategies or fulfill margin calls and stuff. So I went to Fidelity thinking I wanted to be a trader. 2006, it was the cool thing. And thank goodness that didn't work out, right? Because I learned well at Fidelity that trading is just very different from what I envisioned it when I was in college. So I think that I hold a gold star, which I'm a millennial, so I like my gold stars, for being probably the only person who fell into a position at Cambridge. So I was thinking about taking the CFA, actually, level one, was in a class with a friend, and she just so happened to work at Cambridge. They had this kind of sudden departure. And Two weeks later, I was hired. And then the next week, I was on an airplane to Boston. (laughs) That was a very interesting experience because I didn't even know what endowment management was at the time. I thought that the entirety of markets was like hedge funds and retail traders, which now in hindsight is so ridiculous. But from that, it's actually fun because I started in September of 2008. So literally while sitting and training, watched markets melt down and wondered if I was going to have a job. Truly. And Cambridge was just an absolutely wonderful company that kept everybody, the managing directors that year took a pay cut. And it was really what kicked off my career in endowment management. How did you progress at Cambridge? Pretty, I don't want to say meteorically, right? Because, (laughs) but if I may, I believe I was ahead of their standard benchmarks and I ended up as an associate consultant, which is the top tier you can get to without going to business school. I just wanted to learn everything. And the caliber of of my colleagues and the institutions that I got to work with was absolutely incredible. I could do random research projects and look back at historical data and I had access to everything. It was amazing. And so what was your focus? Back then we were all generalists. I had some private families. I had universities. It was a small office. I worked out of the Dallas office. So I worked with the hedge fund specialist. I worked with the private investment specialists out of California and really got to taste everything. A lot of people think that you have to specialize now. And I actually think the opposite. How can you pick investments in one part of your portfolio without understanding what's going on in other parts? I think that's really important. And how did you decide to leave Cambridge? I got into business school. I felt like it was a good next step. There, I think people, they decide to either do CFA or business school. The people that I saw who did business school, I think, had more of a general education and a little bit more of a polish in some ways that I really wanted because I thought that I was going to return to consulting. And so that really spoke to me. And I joked that I wanted to take two years off. But in reality, there were parts of my business knowledge that there were clear gaps I could look at a financial statement, but not necessarily rip it apart the way an accountant could. So I wanted to fill this in. And so coming out of business school? So I came here actually to UT Austin for business school thinking I'm going to be a venture capitalist. And by second year after doing an internship, I'm like, I am not going to be (laughs) a venture capitalist. What was it that made you think you wanted to be a venture capitalist? Just the technology and being at the forefront of building companies that are doing interesting things. 
But it's just very different than what I expected. And it's interesting. I think it takes a special kind of person to really thrive in that environment and the ability to deal with ambiguity and to deal with people who thrive in ambiguity. And I don't know, I'm more of a puzzle solver. I like to construct things and solve problems, which there's a lot of that on the venture capital side, obviously. But I mean, there were a lot of other things that I just were my passion. So if it wasn't venture, then what? Back to allocating. It's so interesting when you start to build up knowledge in an area, just it's hard to let it go. And especially when, I mean, I love what I do. I absolutely love my career. I love the access that I get to information and interesting people and interesting ideas. I saw a job posting, actually, of all places on Indeed. And I'm like, I know Ryan Bailey. This is great. And contacted him and got him to kind of switch the job around that he was trying to fill so that it would work for both of us. And I was really excited because I thought that I would return more on the consulting side, but it's just so fascinating to learn to go 100 feet deep on one client effectively. What was different from what you understood you were getting into coming out of business school from your consulting years and what it felt like when you're in the principal seat? politics of it is kind of crazy. And I say that because I think that consultants, a lot of times you interface with the board, you interface with executive management, but you come in once a quarter and you get to talk maybe once a month. But for the most part, the touch points are a lot, a lot more condensed and a lot more focused on the portfolio. Whereas on an internal team, you can get pulled into anything. And when I say politics, I don't necessarily mean it's bad stuff where people are having their little fiefdoms, but there's definitely an element of having to work on interpersonal skills and communicate things effectively, right? And to build consensus. And you don't necessarily just get to walk in and say this is the house view because you have to build the house view effectively. And is that internal with the investment team, kind of pseudo external with the organization or both? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Because we have a financial officer, right, who integrates our group into his broader financial vision. We have an entire operating arm. We're a hospital. People are like, wow, it's so amazing you manage this money. And I'm like, I'm this really tiny piece of this huge mission. And so working with people through that, helping them understand what we do, helping them understand the process, working with our foundation so that when people donate money, they feel good about what they're giving to. And they understand that we have a process and that their money is very well-kept that their money is being managed according to a process, and it's a good process. We're going to dive into a lot of the issues that go into managing this pool, but I almost feel like we should start with Twitter. <laughs> because you've been, especially in this space, you've really used Twitter as a really interesting educational tool. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on the pluses and minuses of communicating that way. It's funny because other people in this industry have asked me, they say, what do you get out of it? Seems like you have a lot of downside and very limited upside. And I'm like, you have a great point there. I don't know. <laughs> That's a joke because in reality, I enjoy the conversations. I think I learn just as much from people as I hope. I probably learn more, frankly. But it's been such an interesting platform because I kind of started thinking, oh, well, you know, I'll tweet some stuff and maybe people will like it. And at first... I didn't really interact with people and I didn't understand Twitter. And then I realized like, oh, you actually have to comment on people's stuff. <laughs> it's so much richer when we have these like really great dialogues and disagree with each other respectfully, right? So it's been interesting in that regard and in the sense that a lot of people look at it as a risk for me. 
which is something that I didn't expect because I look at it as, okay, I'm I'm obviously not going to say anything stupid or put my institution at risk, but they say, well, what if you tweet something and can't take it back? I'm like, what do you guys think I tweet? Oh my goodness. (laughs) So I ended up disclosing it. The chairwoman of my board follows me. The head of our foundation follows me. I told my boss about it as he was being onboarded because I want people to feel really confident that they can trust me to not speak for the institution by any stretch of the imagination, but to be able to be authentic and to provide that kind of education and to provide kind of a voice for people like us without impacting our institution negatively and hopefully impacting it positively. And has that caused any issues for you internally? I don't think so. I think for the most part, if nothing else, people are really impressed by it. I mean, frankly, I'm kind of impressed by it. So thank you to everybody who follows me because I really appreciate your feedback and your thoughts and your insights. And frankly, you make me better. You make me a better thinker in real life. And so it's crazy to me. But when people see it, they're like, wow, it's a lot of followers. And how does that play out in your day-to-day work with managers? I don't necessarily worry so much about that or think about how it's perceived. I think it's more so just an extension of wanting to be transparent because I value transparency and wanting to be forthright and provide insights that have you know, candor and that are thoughtful. And I think that that resonates with some people and those are the people that kind of gravitate to it and then others, maybe not so much. Let's dive into some of the things that you've talked about on Twitter and we can start with just the manager selection process. It's really interesting because everybody wants to dive into manager selection first and foremost, right? Everyone thinks that that is my job. In reality, it's a major component of what our team does. Obviously, we do take a lot of meetings. It's important to understand what's going on. But ultimately, we like to start with strategy. And you can't talk about strategy without talking about purpose. So within that, I think it comes back to governance, And I have gotten raked over the coals a couple of times because people are like, why would you say that governance is the most important thing? And I'm like, guys, how can you build a portfolio without starting with governance? So it starts with an enterprise review, understanding what the institution needs. It starts with developing a purpose for that pool, right, or for each individual pool, depending on what kind of institution it is, developing a philosophy or amending a philosophy that's in place. And then building a portfolio that marries the purpose with the actual strategy and then the deployment of capital. And how does that work for you, Children's? Our mission is simple, and our mission is amazing. It's to make life better for kids. That is the purpose of our fund. Our distributions basically cover all sorts of programs for the kids. There's a payout to our research institute. It's incredible to get to work on behalf of this mission and to be truly a tiny part of it. And we actually look at all of our partners as allies in our mission. We were involved in the CART-T clinical a couple of years back for pediatric leukemia. And in this kind of nationwide CART-T clinical, 83% of the kids who had recurring leukemia went into remission. And so before, I mean, fewer than 50% lived a couple of years beyond. And now 83%. And so it's like when you think about that, I know I get chills when I talk about it. I never verbalize it quite right to make it sound as impactful as it really is. But like, those are people's kids. It's like future leaders of America. That's incredible. And so to be a small part of that and to be able to see and to hear just the great stuff that's going on with our nurses and our doctors and our volunteers is just a huge deal. I mean, it's a huge honor. So we take that, which is you know, an unambiguous good, and say, okay, what's the strategy? 
So strategy is a funny thing. We obviously have the endowment model, right? And within that, everyone thinks that the endowment model is private alternatives. In reality, it's making the best use of your capital, putting your, like, where is your marginal dollar best used? Is it in illiquid assets at this point? Is it in public equities? Newsflash, you'll probably guess wrong, (laughs) as we've learned. But ultimately, understanding the goals of the institution and making sure that your portfolio reflects that. So, for example, it's hard to generalize institutions because so many people talk about the endowment model and forget that it really isn't for everybody. There are a lot of institutions that outsourcing it or indexing it is actually a really great option. It's for a specific kind of institution. It's for institutions that are trying to basically make a distribution, a substantial distribution at that, that supports operations. And so the strategy is to follow the endowment model. If you sort of compare it to whatever standards of the Cambridge Associates average for endowments, what are the tweaks that you've done that are either catered specifically for the institution or are just based on views that you have that are different from the averages? Being a hospital, one of the things that we kind of go through in the enterprise review is we issue debt for capital projects. So, you know, that's actually really important because these assets back up, in a a lot of instances, the debt issuance. And so we typically have more fixed income. We're also kind of new to the endowment scene, so we typically tend to be a little more conservative. We don't need to be Yale. So we target a beta of about 0.6 and from there build a portfolio around it. So, I mean, it's difficult, right? Because 20% target to fixed income is all of that pure deflation hedging. It's not, I can tell you, because it would be nearly impossible to build a portfolio like that without destroying capital long term. (laughs) Just have to be thoughtful of that. And so having kind of a broad mandate within there, but making sure that we're still true to the deflation hedging part. So what does the rest of the portfolio look like? We look at the world in four asset classes. So global equity, global fixed income, real assets, diversifying strategies, which is the catch-all for everything with a beta 0.3 or less, but it kind of becomes this catch-all for everything that doesn't really fit cleanly into the rest of the portfolio, mostly hedge funds. David Swinson would call it absolute return. And then in each of those asset classes, we then look across the liquidity spectrum. So from ultra liquid, and we have a couple of mutual funds, institutional share classes, but we have mutual funds all the way to privates. So within global equity, would privates be in the global equity bucket? Private equity would be. Private credits in the fixed income buckets. And it's actually really interesting because it makes us look and say, okay, well, is private equity really the best place to be right now? It makes you have to think through, again, where your marginal dollar is best deployed. And in a world where not to say something too unpopular or crazy, but in a world where there is so much money going into private equity right now. I mean, obviously, inflows of capital lead to price discovery, which collapses these kind of informational edges that a lot of people have built. So I do think that there are a lot of groups that may be disappointed in the future. And that's not private equity's fault. It's just there's a lot of money there. And if the fixed income piece is 20%, do you have fixed targets on each of them, or is it all just tied to this beta of 0.6? Fixed targets. We have the strategic asset allocation. It's it's funny because I say that we're all unique, and we are. All of our institutions need different things, but our portfolio structure is typically very similar. So geared towards equities for long-term growth, fixed income, a smaller portion to fixed income, deflation hedge even smaller portion to inflation hedging or real assets, typically real estate and energy. And then the net is cash and hedge funds in most instances. 
So let's dive into each. So let's just start with the diversifying strategies because that's usually the most fun. Just broad views on hedge funds. I love hedge funds. And I say this all the time and people think that I'm being sarcastic or crazy, but I really do. I like the downside protection. And frankly, the goal of our institution's program is not to beat the S&P 500. It's not to beat some arbitrary benchmark. It is to make sure that we have cash on hand when the institution needs cash. And so part of that is, obviously, we want to grow the pool, so we do need equities. But that absolute return bucket is actually incredibly important. Yeah, it's not going to beat the S&P, but it's also not going to make us lose our shirts. And what types of strategies do you put in that? So like low net, relative value kind of stuff, global macro, CTA. It's like everything that's a hedge fund, but that's not long short equity. And how do you go about the manager selection process? So we have kind of a process that we developed. I think a lot of it will sound familiar and you'll probably smirk a little bit. It starts with the four Ps as everybody should. So people process philosophy performance. But the thing is, is that three of those don't change very often, right? So ultimately you typically see people making decisions based on performance then, which is exactly what you're not supposed to do. So we basically overlay opportunity set. So how does the market look right now versus history What do we expect going forward? And then also edge. So what's so special about this manager? What makes them the best one? Why should we put capital with them? I mean, as fiduciaries on behalf of a children's hospital, we I mean, that's a serious question and consideration. And then role in the portfolio, which is highly analytical. And I, I mean, we spend a lot of time there now just really thinking through what's the value add of this manager to the portfolio. So within that, when you're trying to assess that opportunity set, a lot of these strategies aren't driven by an underlying beta tailwind. So how much will you shift? You know what's interesting? I don't remember where I saw it, but kind of flipping that question, I saw some analysis that basically showed that after inflows into a particular strategy, performance actually suffers. So if you see large inflows into a sub-strategy within absolute return hedge funds, or really any hedge fund, really any part of the market, typically there's this kind of six-month lag in performance. And then the opposite also happens when people are redeeming. So, I mean, not enough evidence there, I would say, to go ahead and build a portfolio around it. But there is something to be said for being contrarian in that part of the portfolio. And so do you do that on the margin? It's funny because I think we also try to complicate the portfolio management so much, right? And I think if done right, it's very difficult. But we shouldn't overcomplicate it in that regard. I mean, we have a strategic asset allocation. We have a plan within this portfolio and really making tactical trades. I've seen very little evidence that anybody really is great at these kind of tactical positions. Yeah, so you use the evil E word, edge, which comes up all the time. How do you try to figure out what constitutes, called a competitive advantage for a manager? I've asked thousands of managers at this point in different ways. I try not to use edge, right? Because I know it's kind of the groan-inducing question. But a lot of people say, oh, it's our team or, oh, it's our culture, which those things are really important. But typically, your edge is informational, or at least the ones that really stand out. So either you have access to better information or you do something better with that information. For example, one that I've noticed recently is, you know, a lot of us on this side have been looking at China. And those of us who are just now looking at China obviously are very late, right? Because everybody else piled in a couple of years ago. But 
If you look at Europe, actually, I would argue that there's more alpha there because there's more regulation. There's less transparency. It's very difficult because a lot of times it helps to be part of the culture and to speak the language. And if you could build a team executing a strategy on the ground with these kind of specialized networks that can get stuff done, it's really powerful. It is an alpha machine, but it's hard to find them, right? And everybody on the whole just says, oh, you know. China's cooler. (laughs) What differentiates, let's say there's two teams in Europe and they both are multilingual, they know the space well. Well, Everyone in Europe is multilingual. How do you distinguish between the two that you might put in your portfolio? From there, you look at experience, philosophy. I mean, really talking to the manager. It's funny because I was thinking about this the other day. The old school way of looking at it was you meet with a manager a couple of times and then like stick them in the portfolio, right? And now sitting on the client side, we have multiple meetings. One of the private investments that we're taking later this month is, I mean, we've met with them probably 20 times. 20 times? Yeah. I mean, just over the course of getting to know them over a few years, I mean, yeah, they've been closed. But from that, you just have a really good understanding of what it is that they do. And so the first time I asked, what's your edge? One of the investment team members says, oh, we negotiate really well. And in reality, I can now tell them their edge. It's very clear. It's never been communicated per se, but it's just very obvious that they are good at getting around roadblocks. Just very, very exceptional at executing. And it's like so obvious when you start talking to them and when you meet with them more and more. And it is also so funny because you said, wow, 20 times? Come on, Ted. In any private investment, seven years at least, the seven years is the life of the fund, subject to two two year extensions at the discretion of the GP, subject to like three one year <laughs> extensions at the discretion of the LP. And and lo and behold, you have this private investment relationship that frankly is longer than a lot of marriages. And so spending twenty hours with somebody before you marry them, I think it's important. So let's twist on that and turn to private markets. And you had mentioned that you were kind of late comers into investing in private markets. How have you gone about thinking through where you want to make your investments? See, this is an interesting one because our institution's first private investment was made within the past 10 years. It's difficult when you look at some universities and they've been working with the same venture capital groups, these marquee names, for decades and You're a new kid on the block. One of the biggest things that we've done is focusing on lower middle market managers, looking ahead and thinking, okay, well, where do we really think that there's still value to be had? Where do we think that people can still buy at good prices, create operational efficiencies, and then sell upstream? And, you know, lower middle market has really been the place that we have seen. And it's so funny, too, because it's not just technology. I personally love the really boring companies. I'm like, aggregate the street sweepers. Like, (laughs) go find the warehouse space because there's a lot of room for growth in technology, right? Obviously, I mean, we're in early stages of even like SaaS, but I think there's still something to be said for just boring, buy it cheap, create some improvements, and then sell it to somebody with a little bit more money. That's actually worked very well for us. So lower middle market, a lot of players. Yeah, it's like 40,000 funds. Yeah, how have you gone about that filtering and research process? Working with a consultant has helped. So obviously, that's been a wonderful pipeline. We have an amazing committee that has also been a phenomenal pipeline. My boss, my former boss before he left, met with 800 to 1,000 managers a year by himself. 
And then I met with another three or 400. So really, it's just covering the market. It's letting people know what our mission is, letting people know what we're trying to do. And and honestly, a lot of them have reached out to us because the mission speaks to them, which I love. I do not want to ever commit another dollar to somebody who doesn't understand just how important this mission is. And I think that a lot of allocators are starting to realize that. I know that private equity funds are constrained, obviously, and there a lot of them are hitting their caps. But I just don't want to allocate to anybody who doesn't want to be a great partner. How have you participated in venture capital? It's a small portion of our portfolio. A uh, portion of it is China, portion of it is U.S. And there's this new dynamic in venture in the U.S. where used to, it was the Valley, period. And even yesterday, I was on a call with one of our managers who was saying, oh, yeah, we have partners all over the U.S. now because we have an entrepreneur in Idaho. We have one in Chicago. And it's just so amazing how quickly that has expanded because, I mean, the cost of living is insane there. A lot of people just don't want to live in California. No offense to California. But there is this sort of shift away from the Valley. And it's not huge yet. So I think still 40 or 45% of deals are there. But it's been an interesting dynamic to observe and one that I think that we've really enjoyed because we get it makes us look at managers outside. I mean, there are a lot of really great venture capital funds there that we just can't access. And so it's nice that we have been able to find really great, high-quality GPs who are making phenomenal investments and who are doing very well, and they're not necessarily the kind of marquee names at this point. You mentioned that real assets is smaller, inflation hedge. There's a lot of noise about energy. What are your views on that area right now? I grew up in Texas. (laughs) (laughs) And I understand the kind of thought process for divesting. I get it. I know that for some groups, that's perfectly reasonable and rational, and I understand it. The way I look at it is if you truly want to make an impact on that industry, why would you leave the table? You have such a louder and more impactful position to a GP of a fund or to a portfolio company as a member of their LPAC. Because frankly, once you're not an LP anymore, they don't have to listen to you. And I used to smirk at first, right, because I would be sitting in an energy private equity meeting or annual meeting and they'd be talking about their ESG policies. And I'm like, okay, guys. But in reality, they actually have made great strides in safety, for one, that's just a big one, in just being really thoughtful of the environmental impact, doing studies, and a lot of that has come from push from LPs and from GPs and, frankly, from the energy companies, right, because it's good policy. It's good company culture. It's not about tying your hands and greenwashing stuff. It's about caring about people enough to be thoughtful of their safety. It's a very different thing yeah. when you kind of look at it like that. So, And is the manager selection piece of it similar to the kind of work you'll do and to other private assets? It's funny you ask that because you would think that there's only so much of an informational advantage. There's only so much acreage and you can't have multiple teams doing the same thing and just kind of move them to New Mexico necessarily. And now we hear that some groups that have build big acreage positions are saying, oh, we're going to have to operate. And that's a very different conversation to have with your GP. And it's interesting, though, because I think that it has led to some good things. I mean, there have been a couple of big energy groups that are now doing clean tech funds, which is a thing that I never thought that I would see. At first, I was very skeptical and thought, okay, it's again, more greenwashing. 
but they're actually building some pretty solid teams there. And so then you have to look at it and say, okay, well, instead of just being oil and gas, they're across the energy spectrum and it starts to become interesting. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And 1, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. NetSuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. What are the biggest lessons you've learned in picking managers? If something doesn't sound right, keep asking questions. And do trust your gut in that reality. And I'm not saying like, oh, my gut is telling me to be in this thing versus that. But particularly around risk, just being really thoughtful of how you know, managers assess risk and how they look at it in their portfolio and how they view it holistically. I think there have been a couple of instances where we've pulled out of stuff, ultimately because we couldn't get comfortable with that piece. And I like that I worked for a head of investments and I've worked within a group like Cambridge where those kinds of things are important and where they put a lot of stock into them versus just saying, oh, the performance is great, shut your mouth and look the other way. That it's the operational stuff, the operational due diligence that typically stinks funds, which was a surprise to me. You would think that it would be, oh, we look at the investment due diligence side, but in reality, it's that 10th paragraph on the 30th page that you should probably question. And so part of that also dovetails into the third thing. Read all of your documents. Read everything. Submit it to legal review. Go through it. Understand it. Know what you're getting into. Because it's crazy to me that we sign these documents, again, locking ourselves into marriage with a GP for 10 to 15 years, and then say we don't have time to read the thousand pages. I think that if you're unwilling to do that, then you probably shouldn't invest in privates because those docs are so important. And lastly, there's a big difference between what is reasonable and what is market. And I will leave it at that. Mm -hmm. Where does the rubber meet the road in a situation where there is so much demand for funds that are perceived to be high quality, maybe have done well in the past, and you want to read the docs, but maybe somebody else isn't going to, and there's a time pressure. So it's interesting that you ask this because I have had multiple GPs and managers recently tell me that they are looking for long-term capital. They're looking for a long-term partnership. They want people with great missions who are thoughtful investors who are going to re-up. And the thing that I would respond and say is, if I'm reading all of your docs, it means I care. It means that I'm going to be invested on a personal level, but then also that my team and my institution are putting a lot of time and effort and frankly money into underwriting you. And so we're sticky capital. 
And our goal is then to be a good partner to you. So if you're playing the long game, you want people to read your documents. And I found that with GPs, that the ones that we typically end up partnering with are the ones who want that. They want groups that are going to re-up in the second fund and the third fund and the fourth fund and continue to grow with them. Sure, but are they willing to wait I mean, how long do you think it takes me to read? It depends how many pages of docs there are. It's like a weekend. This is my light reading for the weekend. Reading the offering docs, reading the background, going back through decks, and looking through notes, talking to everybody, making sure that you have high conviction in the group. So as you're in these diligence processes, right, everybody tries to do something a little bit different from other people. What do you do differently, maybe in your day-to-day from what you think other people do. A lot of people assume that I'm meeting with managers all day, and a lot of that happens. I have days where I meet with managers. But in reality, I also don't check my email much because (laughs) so much of what I do is thought capital, and it's thinking through things. It's talking to my team. It's talking to people that I respect. It's talking to board members. It's talking to executives within my institution and figuring out what they need. It's not finding the 10th long short equity manager to stick in the portfolio. And beyond that, it wouldn't be a good use of my time. So I get all of these emails. I think a lot of people, this is kind of an issue with sitting on our side, is that I have 2,200 emails in my inbox. I have to have people on a VIP list, so it pops up to the top Ted's on that VIP list. (laughs) But the reality is, is it's not to be a jerk and I don't mean to not respond, but if I sat down and went through every email and responded, even with a few words, and that would be a terrible use of my time. So I prefer, again, to focus on the strategy component and to really think about how the portfolio is constructed, because as we know, what, 60, 70% of our returns is driven by asset allocation. And then I'm not saying that manager selection has to be good enough. I mean, obviously, we want to work with the best people. But ultimately, it's not my number one focus. What are the implications in this world when so many people communicate over email of not? (laughs) It's all over the place. I've had people ask me if I'm mad, if I'm angry at them. And I'm like, no, I just I literally get so much email. And it's actually insane to me. And But you're right. In this society where we're kind of conditioned to get that, I don't know how to necessarily... Actually, right now I will say, greetings to everybody out there who has an email in my inbox. I apologize. I have not responded. It is not you. It is me. (laughs) (laughs) And I hope to get back to you in the near future. Keep trying and come find me at conferences and stuff. I'm not trying to ignore you. I don't think that your fund is bad. Oh, and also, if you really want me to read your email summary bullet points at the top, not five paragraphs. You have to understand that in our role, we just get a ton of emails. And ultimately, it comes, again, in a world where data is everywhere and there's information and people have access, like the relationship becomes really important. Let's circle back a little bit on the portfolio management process, because you had mentioned how that really is the key in what you're doing. Manager selection matters. As you go into the year, How do you think about what are the key things that you need to rethink in your portfolio construction? Really, since the middle of last year, so since the middle of 2019, my thought has been to challenge both myself, the team, and challenge the stuff that we've assumed, challenge these assumptions that we all hold either together or individually, and 
ask ourselves if it's still working for the institution. So is our strategic target where it needs to be? Do we have enough liquidity? How robust is our analysis? So to look at, for example, scenario testing (laughs) and to test asset allocations, I think that that's so interesting that a lot of people on our side forget that modern portfolio theory drastically underestimates risk because it's a normal distribution. In reality, we know that that is not a true thing. Because when you look at all of the kind of output, it says, oh, you know, the 100-year flood is going to be down 20%. And I'm like, okay, well, there have been multiple times in the past 100 years where we have hit that. So being really, really intellectually honest about what we're doing and why we're doing it. And then to tie that back again to the strategy and to the philosophy and then ultimately to the enterprise. So, you know, when we look at it, part of that is having to talk to people within our institution. What will the needs be? What are you guys looking at? We're actually expanding our Plano campus in the next few years. So basically, I think more than doubling it. It's a huge capital project. So what are the needs? Do we need to change the portfolio? It's an incredibly exciting thing for our institution. And again, to be able to really fulfill our mission, but it's tying it all together and making sure that we're not just making assumptions and living by rules of thumb that no longer really work for the institution. So what opportunities are you most excited about? We did quite a bit in China. And now everyone's really looking at China. So I'm like, I'm going to be contrarian and look at Europe. And then I found out that there are quite a few of us that are contrarian and looking at Europe right now. So uh, I'm not as contrarian as I thought. I feel like every conference that I've been to in the past probably 10 years has said, oh, it's such a difficult environment. And so I hate saying that, but it really is. I would love to see a distress cycle. Yeah. And what are the risks you're most worried about? Not hitting our target, frankly. How about in the markets? Less worried about that. It's funny. As I get older, I start to realize how much noise there is, right? So it's like so much of what everyone talks about is just absolute noise. And so I worry that sometimes that the noise is going to start impacting stuff and then I'm going to have to pay attention to it. So that's a risk, right? (laughs) But ultimately, I mean, obviously there's the risk of a drawdown, but I mean, that's investing. That's what we do. And so you can't be afraid of it because it's going to happen. Just don't know when. And you don't know how bad it's going to be. And you don't know if it's going to be dramatic or if it's just going to kind of move sideways, but slowly down. So yeah, it's fun to think about, right? But I don't necessarily worry about that risk because I think our portfolio is well positioned to wither it. What's been the toughest an individual manager decision that you've had to make with your team? Particularly for managers that we've had long-term relationships with, it can be difficult when we have to kind of change the strategy of an asset class or of a portfolio when we end up having to redeem. And the best ones understand that, and they understand that it's business, and that in a lot of instances, we can explain to them what we're trying to do and part on good terms and hope that we can work with them again in the future. But I can't answer specifics, obviously, right? But it's really hard when you have to fire a manager you like. And by fire, I use fire very loosely because in reality, it's just terminating to do something different. But it's still hard because our business is a relationship business. We like to think it's all data and data-driven and data points, but in a world where data is ubiquitous, relationships are what are important. How do you integrate data into your process? (laughs) It's difficult. When you're talking about investing across the liquidity spectrum, it's like I get everything from daily reporting to 
quarterly-ish reporting. <laughs> and then everything in between. And I get some risk reports that are really thoughtful and you can trust them. And then you get others that you hear are like, oh, that's actually not a thing. It's one of my goals in 2020 is to think about how our team can leverage all this data. Maybe trying to filter out some of the noise, but trying to figure out what, where we've made good decisions, where we've made bad decisions, and start to be, you know, really, again, intellectually honest about what are the drivers of our returns. Because at this point, there aren't many endowments that can do that. It's, I'm sure universities can, but everybody else, it's difficult to get those analytics, even working with a lot of great groups like we do. So in an ideal world, if you got all the data you wanted, are you mostly looking at risk exposures and performance and then trying to tear those apart to see where there's real value add? No, I'm actually looking at strategy to make sure that you're executing exactly as we expect. Because it's so funny to me that we get so obsessed with performance, but in reality, I think the more important thing is when you're hiring that manager to set those expectations and to say, that's why opportunity set is so important in edge and kind of role in the portfolio is to put almost, I don't want to call them constraints, but expectations around that manager. And so then, for example, we had a hedge fund that was performing phenomenally, just absolutely knocking it out of the park. But in reality, I mean, we could have gotten that exposure much cheaper elsewhere. And so it actually kind of works that way. And I give that kind of as a tongue-in-cheek example, but in reality, like, that's the kind of stuff I'm looking for. I'm, I'm looking for, can we get this exposure cheaper? Can we get it in a pure form? Can we construct this portfolio better? Is the manager doing what we expect. And so that way we're not saying, oh, well, this manager is down by X percent. I'm saying, okay, I expect in this market that this manager will do this. And if they do, then great. And if they don't, we have a conversation. All right, Christy, let's turn to some closing questions. What's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? So I was laughing about this. Pretty much everything that an 80-year-old lady would love to do. So think (laughs) like cooking and baking cookies and gardening. My daughter and I, we planted hydrangeas. So I'm very excited about this. Although Texas hydrangea is probably not the wisest idea, but very excited. I took up knitting recently. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, just stuff that's not investments. I mean, I love investments. I love reading about it. But yeah, ultimately, I also like doing 80-year-old lady things. All right. What's your biggest pet peeve? People who correct my grammar and tweets. And I, okay, so I'm an English minor, so I know some English, and I just always kind of roll my eyes and think, okay, well, you try to put together a 15-tweet thread in the back of a cab in New York City while getting emails from work and tell me how perfect your grammar is. But I always find it funny because a lot of times somebody will disagree with me, and then they can't necessarily make their point or win their point, so then they're like, oh, I can't believe you said this thing wrong, whatever. How about your biggest investment pet peeve? I have many of these, and I actually wrote them down because I didn't want to miss any of them. All right. Is this a top 10 list? It's like eight. Okay, here we go. Pitch decks that tout a team's 950 years of experience. (laughs) Because first of all, I'm like, okay, who's your (laughs) 950-year-old? And what was it like investing the portfolio ahead of the Crusades? Two conference calls where everybody all of a sudden talks at once, and then nobody talks for like 10 seconds. Drives me insane. That when people assume that the man in the room has seniority, it makes me smile. So, you know, not an angry pet peeve, but still herd mentality in the industry. 
big thing. Overcomplicating processes, interjecting biases, making people take tests, like, you know, stuff that doesn't really necessarily point, drives me nuts. Fifth follow-up emails. (laughs) Although I, I shouldn't really say that because I actually, I appreciate them. Because especially when somebody pops up to the top and I'm like, oh, I can't believe I missed them. So we'll strike that one. People who take the efficient frontier modern portfolio theory as gospel. And yeah, this will be my last one. Men who refuse to mentor women in the wake of Me Too is a big one. That's a good one. What reading do you almost never miss? I put out a tweet about this a while back that I need to update, but basically any major investment consultant report, I'm on distribution list for all of them, love them. And they're all so different. There was one actually from FEG that came out recently about biotech and therapeutics that I'm just absolutely amazing what's going on in that space right now. McKinsey, Bain, all of those groups, because so many of them do actual due diligence for private equity. And it's fascinating to hear their insights. How do you use social media... I think, because I actually, there was a tweet about this too, I think it's a little creepy how some of us on this side do due diligence now. Particularly, I've noticed that if it's a female GP or a female head of office, that people will go to this like nth degree to find every single thing out about this person. It's obviously important that we're investing with people, high quality, good values and morals, great partners to us. But ultimately, I don't need to know what they're doing on a Tuesday night. I don't need to know what they're eating. It's actually funny because one of the rules of thumb is, oh, if somebody's going through a divorce, go ahead and submit your redemption. But in reality, a manager getting married has a worse impact on performance than divorces do. And so we have, again, we have all of these rules of thumb and some groups make them take tests. Some groups are saying, oh, you know, got to be nice or can't be too nice or it, there's just all of these things around it and I try really hard not to look into those and to let people be themselves right so Cliff Asnes was on Twitter I mean unfortunately he left he had political views and that's perfectly fine he's human he should have them and what kind of society are we if we like shut him out or somehow think that you know we can't invest with him or his team just because of his views I just, I find that to be completely ridiculous. I mean, obviously, if he laundered money, right, you can't, if he got, ran afoul of the SEC, there, you know, that kind of stuff is important, but Cliff Asinus's political views shouldn't matter. So would you take that to the extreme and say the same thing about Bob Mercer? Yeah. I mean, like, it's difficult, right? Because then you start getting into campaign finance and all sorts of other stuff. But like, ultimately, yeah, they're allowed to have their views. And why are we so afraid of that? I mean, that's, that also comes up with a bigger discussion, right, of like class, like socioeconomics, just wealth distribution in this country. Go start a grassroots effort or get involved or do what I do and just hunker down and block it all out. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? With my mom, really instilled a love for reading and just a love for knowledge in me. But ultimately, she taught me consistency. So my mom is actually technically my stepmom, but only mom I ever have known. And just this concept of in our society, a lot of times we want to blame other people. Or Mom has taught me pretty much everything in life is a choice. Like you can't necessarily control what is going on around you, but you can control your reaction. You can control who you love. You can control who you surround yourself with. You can control what you put in your mind. And um, consistently doing that and showing up for people is really what's important in life. 
And then from my dad, I would say just the idea that if I'm the smartest person in the room, then I need to go find a new room really instilled in me this idea that you want to hire people that are smarter than you and you want to seek out people who are smarter than you and you want to seek out people who challenge you. All right, Christy, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Oh, this is another multi-part one because I actually listed for this too. Okay, so first and foremost, that 99% of news and information and data is absolute noise. Since I have tuned it out, I think I have become a better investor. And I actually uh, was talking to a CIO that I really respect and kind of mentioned that to him. And he was like, oh, yeah, duh. right?" <laughs> and, and so it, it seems so obvious in hindsight now that I've kind of taken a lot of that out of my life. But in reality, I think so many people just kind of obsessively watch the news and they're like talking about the election and stuff. And I think – Ultimately, you're probably going to call it wrong anyways. How are you going to express that in your portfolio and why would you? Because ultimately, it's a short-term thing in your perpetual capital. The second lesson learned in life is the kind of lone wolf. How do I say this? The lone wolf narrative is a myth. And I think as a society, we're so enamored with this like lone wolf concept. And especially, I mean, it's sometimes in venture capital too. And one of my favorite parts about going to these annual meetings for our venture capital GPs is getting to meet the entrepreneurs and hearing the messiness of the story. It is not the same as the Wall Street Journal version you hear. And you hear how important the team is. Because so often the team gets lost because there's only so much you can write up in a newspaper and an article. But in reality, the founders are pretty open about how their teams helped and about their failings and about all sorts of other things. And so I wish that I had learned earlier in life that like that is not a real thing and that people who tell you that it is, they have no appreciation for people and you probably shouldn't work with them. If you want to sound smart, keep it simple. That's it. Oh, I mean, in consulting, I think so many people want to like use big words and in across I guess, across this whole industry. And there's this kind of tendency to want to complicate it and make it sound really... But the people that I have found are the most thoughtful investors are the ones who can distill a really complex concept into like this really easy nugget that anybody can digest and do so in like 30 seconds. I'll close with, it's kind of a build on the myth of the lone wolf, but how important sponsors are mentors and sponsors and not going and asking someone to be your mentor, but building a relationship with somebody who you admire and trust their judgment and accepting critical feedback. I have learned so much about my blind spots in the past year of people telling me and coming to me being really honest with me. And I've greatly appreciated that, but I wish that I had started that way younger because I think in terms of a lot of the feedback at this point is about executive presence going forward. And that's hard to hear (laughs) sometimes. And so it's been wonderful to have people who can come to me in kind of a respectful manner and say, hey, let's work on this. And I greatly appreciate that. Christy, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. Podcasts aren't as bad as I thought they'd be. (laughs) I meant that with love. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. 